morning. If you have your Bibles handy, if you would open those up to Song of Songs, chapter 5. We'll be in verses 2 through 8 this morning. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 8. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the dewdrops of the night. I have taken off my dress, how can I put it on again? I've washed my feet, how can I dirty them again? My beloved extended his hand through the opening and my feelings were stirred for him. I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with drops of myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guards of the walls took my shawl away from me. Swear to me, you daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, as to what you will tell him. For I am lovesick. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning again in the name of your Son. Ask, Lord, your blessing now upon this time when we open your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Lord, that our hearts would not only discern and understand the meaning of the words recorded in Scripture, but that they would be applied. Father, we pray that by these words, Lord, shall we be drawn nearer to you, that we should have a greater apprehension of who you are and of your great love for us in the Beloved. Father, where there may meet someone discouraged today, may their hearts be brought up and encouraged in Christ, where there may be some here today, Lord, who, who are asleep, who are slumbering spiritually. May you cause your word to awaken them. Father, I pray where there are those who are without Christ altogether, that you would be well pleased through the agency of your spirit to draw their hearts unto Christ, that they may find love in him, life in him. Lord, I pray, uh, use this weak messenger for these things and for your praise and glory. In Christ's name. You may be seated. Quoting again from Charles Spurgeon regarding our text here before us this morning. When children of God perceive their own imperfections and mourn over them, there is evidently a root of virtue in them. When they perceive the decay of their grace, there is some grace left undecayed with which they are bemoaning their decline. I would not give you encouragement, dear brother, if you are asleep at all to continue in it. But yet I would say this, that if you mourn over your sluggishness, you are not altogether a sluggard. If you feel uneasy in your dullness, you're not altogether given over to spiritual stupidity. If you are anxious to be aroused out of your slumber, it is certain that you are not given over to sleep yourself into the sepulcher of insensibility. God be thanked 
that you cannot enjoy pleasant dreams upon the bed of carelessness. You do not sleep as do others. You are evidently not steeped in that fatal slumber of spiritual death in which the dead world is slumbering all around. Infinite mercy has had some dealings with you and has made you so far to be spiritually awake that you can feel that you are asleep and mournfully confess it. So our passage here this morning marks a clear transition into the fourth of five sections of this book. The scenario that's before us today in this passage is, uh, has a great similarity to a previous passage that we encountered back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, which Josiah read for us here earlier. And here in this passage we see the scene opening with the bride on her bed alone at night and it progresses to a search for the groom in the streets, unable to find him. And then while looking for him, she's found by the watchman. So these parts are all very similar and and, um, yet the episode here plays out much differently as we'll consider this morning walking through the passage. And so the theme for this fourth section I would propose as this. The church is at times a slumbering bride whose delayed response affects a time of spiritual languish, but will be brought again to a restoration in Christ's love. And I'll repeat that. The church is at times a slumbering, a slumbering bride whose delayed response affects a time of spiritual languish, but will be brought again to a restoration in Christ's love. I have four particular points I want to make out of the passage this morning, and then we'll make some applications as well. A slumbering bride a hesitating response, an aggravated loss, and an earnest plea. So to begin with, a slumbering bride. Chapter 5, verse 2. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved was knocking, open to me. My sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the dew drops of the night. So let's begin by making some simple observations here. First of all, we see that the bride is drifted off to sleep. The, the whole passage today really is from the perspective of the bride and, and centers on this particular detail and plays out from this point onward. And again, this is an entirely new scene from the former, if you might recall, where we closed last week at this great feast in the bride's garden. And so this section begins with this interesting phrase, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. From this we can deduce, uh, first of all, that the bride is in her own bed, at her own home, and therefore still in a state of betrothal, and that the groom himself has been away. And yet, while she is sleeping, she still has a love that she fosters for the groom, but she's, she's drifted off. Now she is sleeping. Secondly, that the groom knocks on the door of a slumbering of the slumbering bride. So while in this very sleepy state, the groom comes to her home to find her, and we read, A voice, my beloved was knocking. So at his arrival, he calls to her, he knocks upon the door to rouse her from her bed that she might come and open the door to him, that they might have communion with one another. He pleads, open to me. We see here the reason 
then for his coming, of course, which is to be with his beloved. He desires to be near to her, to share in intimate company and communion with her. Third observation, his pursuit was made in earnest love. He addresses her with four terms. All of them proceeded with my. He says, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. Again, we see the groom's explicit possession of his bride. She belongs to him. She is his bride. And of course, as we've seen previously, that that ownership goes both ways. It is a mutual feeling. And each of the terms here are terms of endearment, terms that we've already encountered throughout this book. He calls calls her his sister, that of near and dear kinship, his darling. The Hebrew phrase here could likewise be translated my love or my companion. His dove, one who is at peace and chaste in this relationship. His perfect one, one that's complete in beauty without blemish. He goes on to tell her, For my head is drenched with dew, and my locks with the dewdrops of the night. I think from this we are to surmise that he has traveled through the night and through many hazards to be with her. He's endured hardships for the sake of coming to her to be with her. In other words, this speaks to the earnest nature of his love for her, his actions here are the very proof of the love that he confesses. So let's look at this then through the lens of Christ. First of all, the bride of Christ may drift off to sleep. The bride of Christ may drift off to sleep. If we understand the Song of Songs as an allegory, written again in its immediate context as a representation of the relationship between Yahweh and Israel and Solomon seeking to depict that through this picture of a bride and a groom and that which we know has its fullest expression in Christ and the church, then we can certainly appreciate with that in view various times throughout redemptive history when the people of God have been found in such a slumbering state. But as with other aspects of this song, I think we can rightly apply this even further If we're honest, there are times when a congregation, for instance, or even the individual believer, might be in this sort of slumbering and drowsy state as well. Not willfully or openly rebellious and disobedient to Christ, not having abandoned right doctrine, not having become openly apostate, and yet we could say all the while asleep, clothed with spiritual apathy, inattentive, unresponsive to the Spirit's promptings, disengaged from kingdom pursuits, preoccupied with day-to-day activities. In fact, as such, one might still even be going through the motions of regular worship, daily prayer and Bible reading, but only in a mechanical sort of way, without any sort of serious self-examination or any serious meditation upon the things of Christ. So, for instance, have you ever found yourself on a long trip, driving along, and realizing that for the last hour, 
you can't recall a single thing. You are at the wheel somehow by God's grace remaining on the road, but you have no recollection of the events. You were disengaged entirely from the act. You're on autopilot. Is the church not at times like this? We ourselves, are we not at times like this? George Burroughs comments, Even with grace in the soul, with the heart awake, we find ourselves falling asleep, run down by the business of life, the charms of the world, or the infirmities of the flesh. This condition is one of outward comfort. Everything around us is pleasant, as when reposing at night on our bed. And we are feeling the dangers incurred by the Christian through prosperity. Had the spouse been at this time suffering from pain or fear so as to be incapable of sleep and to feel the need of the presence and protection of the beloved, he would have found her watching for his return and would not have been obliged thus to sue for admission. At such times, in our heartless indifference, how tenderly does he try to regain and rouse our love. Which brings us then to the next point. Jesus knocks on the door of the slumbering church. To such a congregation or even an individual believer, in time, Jesus comes knocking. He will come saying to them, open to me. In fact, the book of Revelation, among the letters of the seven churches, we read this morning how Jesus visited the church of Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He comes to the slumbering church to rouse them from their sleep. Third point, his pursuit is made in earnest love. Now, the circumstances of his visitation are perhaps different here as compared to what we read in Laodicea. But we see the same pursuit of a loving Savior to commune with his bride who is inattentive. And he comes to the church calling out to her as his beloved, my sister, his very kinship, my darling, that is his his dear companion, my dove, his peaceful partner, my perfect one, that is his spotless bride clothed in his own robes of righteousness. And let us be reminded at what a cost He comes to pursue us. For it was the joy set before Him that He endured the cross. We'll move now into the second of our main points, a hesitating response. Verse 3 through 6a. I have taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? My beloved extended His hand through the opening and my feelings were stirred for Him. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with drops of myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and gone. So again, let's look at some general observations. First of all, she initially excuses herself. She poses two parallel excuses in the form of questions. I have taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? Now these 
prove to be, I think, very sorry excuses. But her thinking is like this. I've already done the task of preparing a comfortable night's sleep. It's one thing to go tramping about when you're dressed and dirty, but I've had my evening shower. I've put on my comfortable pajamas. I'm cozy. Now's not a good time for me to be entertaining. I think we can relate to that. I mean, those of you who maybe live out in the country and you've been outside, you've done your chores, you go in, you shower up, you, you put on your, your night clothes, whatever those might be, and you find out that the cows are loose. I don't want to go back out again. I've gone through all these motions. I'm comfortable. Let the cows worry about themselves. <laughs> we can relate to this. There are various proverbs, also written by Solomon, which address, I believe, such an attitude. Proverbs 6, 9-11. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. She is clean. She's comfortable. She's at ease. She's in bed, ready to sleep. And therefore, her initial response is to excuse herself from opening up the door to entertain the groom who has arrived. Self-indulgence, comfort, ease have made her slothful and slow to respond, thinking not of the groom and the rewards of his love, but rather of preserving her ease. Second point, Jesus is able to awaken our affections. My beloved extended his hand through the opening and my feelings were stirred for him. Well, the thought here is that perhaps there was an opening by which a hand could pass and unbolt the door from the outside. And in spite of her cold response, he doesn't chide her, but rather seeks to unbolt the door than himself. And the effect of this, which is a sort of enlivening then of her affections. But we see, thirdly, her answer here is too late. I arose to open to my beloved, my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with drops of myrrh on the handles of the bolt. With her feelings stirred, she's brought to her senses, and she hops up out of her bed, and she answers the do- door with this sort of renewed sort of affection. Continuing in verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. By the time she gets to the door, he's gone. He's left. Her response had been too slow, and her answer had come too late. So as your mind is already perhaps doing, let's consider this then through the lens of Christ. A slumbering church has many excuses. I mean, the principle could be rightly applied to the church at large, or even a particular congregation, or even again as to individual believers. It's easy for us to be lulled to to spiritual sleep. This is not to say that we have lost our love to Christ, but that we slide into a comfortable place of spiritual ease and retirement. We're content to just keep going through the motions, but the fire in our hearts for Him 
is now but a flicker. In fact, we begin to prefer our current rest and would rather not do anything to disquiet the comfortable position that we have now found ourselves in. Peter Masters describes the lesson of the slumbering bride in this way. She has succumbed to ease and now is reluctant, recalcitrant and grudging. And so are we in the equivalent spiritual condition. Christ is lowered in our estimation. We've put off the coat of reliance on Him and washed our feet from His service. There was a time when we would have done anything for Him and done it gladly and immediately, for nothing was too much. The words of the prophet Amos, I think, seem fitting here. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches. Second point, Jesus is able to awaken our affections. The grace and the love of Jesus can, as it were, penetrate through the closed door of our hearts so that they are unbolted to stir up our affections toward Him. Matthew Henry comments, the powerful influences of divine grace by which she was made willing to rise and open to her beloved When he could not prevail with her by persuasion, he put his hand in the hole of the door to unbolt it as one weary of waiting. This intimates a work of the Spirit upon her soul by which she was unwilling, made willing. Third point, a delayed response risks loss of communion. When we have delayed in answering his invitations of communion, having sought us in kindness when though we have slid into a spiritual slumber, then we risk the withdrawing of His presence and the hazard of being left in a time of great sorrow and humiliation of spiritual desertion from His intimate presence. Again, I would say this is true corporately and individually. Moving forward into the third main point, an aggravated loss, picking up again in 6b. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guards of the walls took my shawl away from me. So some basic observations. First of all, we see now her love motivating her. Her affections for the groom now having been stirred by him now we could say are even fully engaged. This burning love has altered her course. She's not about to return to her bed. She's done with that. And whereas she was initially hesitating and unwilling to leave her place of comfort, now we see her ready not only to leave the place of comfort, but even to risk her safety by venturing out into the city streets at night. Second observation, she sought him without reward. So she begins wandering through the dark streets of the city, calling out his name, searching for him in earnest, but all of this to no avail. She can't find him anywhere. He's vanished. He's gone. He's nowhere to be found. And then the third thing that happens in this passage, the watchmen aggravate her loss. Now, the watchmen of the night who patrol the city streets... They find her out searching. And unlike in the 
similar scenario in chapter 3 where the watchman find her and help her. These men find her behavior not only suspicious, but downright wicked. It might be that they assumed that her purposes here were wanton immorality, and so they make it their duty to beat her in an effort to avert the cause of this lewd woman, so they thought to themselves. They go further, they even strip her of the shawl that she's, she's wearing, a token of her modesty, as if to validate them their evil suspicions toward her. For the bride, this was adding insult to injury. It was a grievous aggravation to her sense of sorrow and loss. So let's look at this through the lens of Christ. First of all, our love will drive us to seek Him. For the believer or the church who truly belongs to Christ, who truly loves Him, when our affections have been stirred up by the Spirit of God, such love will compel us not only to call out for Him in prayer, but to actively seek Him, to run after Him at any cost, and to risk whatever hazards we might meet in order to behold His face and to have again His intimate company. Secondly, our search may seem in vain. While our hearts have been turned to seek Him, we must be prepared to persevere, because sometimes our searching may not yield results at the first. Our our seeking may not result in finding Him immediately. A sense of His presence may elude us even in our earnest and love-wrought efforts to find Him. Thirdly, sometimes the watchman will aggravate our loss. So as we considered while working through chapter 3, in that scenario, the watchmen are appointed as protection to the city. And we see this term applied in the Old Testament to describe those whose task was spiritual oversight to the people of God. Sometimes this was applied in a way when the watchmen did as they ought to do. Sometimes it was applied in a negative way when the watchmen failed to do their duty, such as in Isaiah 56.10, his watchmen are blind, all of them not knowing, all of them are mute dogs unable to bark, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. So we can see it applied either way, but it's true the same, that they are those who have spiritual oversight of the people. And in the New Testament then, such watchmen are most closely associated with the elders and overseers who pastor the church those who are the ministers of the gospel. The author of Hebrews writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. In this case, I would say it's, it's not clear that the watchmen necessarily have an evil intent, but at the very least, they're lacking discernment. They've misapplied their authority and bringing injury to one whose course was earnest and holy because they assumed the worst of them. Such was the case for Hannah when Eli saw her praying earnestly in the temple, right? Do you remember that? Weeping bitterly before the Lord, and he assumed that she was intoxicated and he scolded her for it, though soon he was brought to realize his mistake. And so it goes at times, sadly, for those who belong to Christ who rather than being assisted by their pastors or spiritual leaders in their searching for Christ, are abused by those who are called to watch over their souls. George Burroughs, again, comments, Christians animated by a holy zeal 
under intense influences of the Holy Spirit, have often met with ill treatment from their brethren and even from the ministry, the watchmen of Zion, who should help them in their search for the object of their affection, rather than treat them as destitute of suitable claims to be considered real lovers of Jesus. This disposition has not been confined to any one sect. It belongs to human nature and has shown itself in men of every creed. In their fear of what is called fanaticism, some persons shun what are genuine religious affections. Many a poor soul with a heart aching and burning to know more of Christ has had its honest inquiries met with reproach or indifference. Hence, in every age, when spiritual decay has been prevalent, persons taking the lead in reviving evangelical religion have had to encounter ill treatment and persecution. Our fourth point this morning, an earnest plea, chapter 5, verse 8. Swear to me, you daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. So the scene now moves to the response of the bride in this very difficult season of desertion, having been abused by the watchman rather than to bemoan their actions. She simply bears patiently turns then to the daughters of Jerusalem for assistance, and she pleads with them. Her plea to them is very solemn. It's yearning. It's desperate love. First of all, her, her plea is solemn. She begins, Swear to me, you daughters of Jerusalem. Do you see the seriousness in that tone? Her request is anything but trite. This is a very solemn matter to her. Secondly, her plea is yearning. She says, if you find my beloved, she yearns to find him. He is the object of her affection and her search. And thirdly, her plea is desperate love. She continues, is what she will tell him, for I am lovesick. She wants them to let her beloved know that she is lovesick, that she can't live without him. She is, I think here, as we read between the lines, as we consider the scenario, all too aware of how coldly and indifferently she's treated him. And how this has even provoked his withdrawal. And so she would do anything to undo this loss because she desperately loves him. She desperately needs him. Let's look at this then through the lens of Christ. An earnest search for our Lord is solemn. Those who will seek after Christ are anything but trite. Those who perceive the withdrawal of His presence have no interest in spiritual clowns and comedians. Their search is solemn. Secondly, an earnest search for our Lord is yearning. The great object of such spiritual pursuit is communion with Christ. Communion with Christ. To know His presence. To walk in nearness. To behold His face. Thirdly, an earnest search for our Lord is desperate love. George Burroughs writes, We see here that holy love and holy joy do not always exist together in the same degree. 
There may be very much of the former during an absence of the latter. The soul may be sick of love to Jesus while mourning the withdrawal of His presence and struggling amid the darkness of temptation, obliquity, and sorrow. So let's then close this morning with some applications from our text. First of all, I I think this is the big lesson here, is to be mindful of spiritual slumber. I think we must own our weakness in this matter. We are apt to spiritual slumber, much like Peter, James, and John in the garden. How easily the comforts in our life lull us to sleep. How easily worldly pleasures and pursuits become a lullaby and cause our spiritual alertness to drift away. How many excuses, even trivial things, that keep us from those spiritual sorts of engagements that fortify our alertness, our time in His Word and prayer, opportunities of fellowship or service or advancement of His kingdom. Soon we find ourselves saying, I'm clean. I'm in a comfortable position. I'd rather not get up just now. Maybe tomorrow. How many times and in how many ways did Jesus say to His disciples, be on the alert? And Peter, who knew well the hazard of sleeping, writes in his epistle, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Again, this is, I believe, true not only personally, but corporately as well. Have we become too comfortable? When the Spirit of God would be having us engage, do we simply make excuses and continue to rest in our comfortable bed? Be mindful of spiritual slumber. Secondly, we too may experience spiritual withdrawals. In my familiarity with the writings of other saints who have gone before, The testimony of even the godliest of these often includes periods of spiritual dryness and desertion. And like as not, I believe that we too shall have these types of seasons. In fact, it is those who know His intimate presence and the joys found in close communion, I think, are most apt to realize and bemoan such seasons of dryness. Matthew Henry writes, Gracious souls are more sensible of Christ's withdrawings than that of any other trouble whatsoever. The lover languishes, but not his love. Thirdly, let us persevere in earnest love. One who is lovesick for Jesus, however, pleasant this condition may be is is actually a soul who is, I'm sorry, however unpleasant this condition may be is actually a soul in good health. In other words, if you have that sensibility that you have lost something, 
and you're desperate to know Him and to commune with Him again, then that is actually a sign of spiritual health within your soul. It's not a sickness unto death. Again, Matthew Henry writes, there are those who have a true love for Christ and yet have not immediate answers to their prayers for His smiles. But He gives them an equivalent if He strengthens them, strengthens them with the strength in their souls to continue seeking Him. Paul could not prevail for the removing of the thorn in the flesh, but was answered with grace sufficient for him. When we have seasons of spiritual desertion, let us persevere then in earnest love, taking hope in the love itself as a token of His grace, this evidence of His abiding in our hearts. And find comfort in the meanwhile that he says to us, my grace is sufficient. Let's close with that. Heavenly Father, we confess before you this morning, Lord, we know that we are a people who live in a land of comforts. We are a people who are apt to spiritual slumber. We are a people who might readily say, I'm clean. I'm in my comfortable clothes. I'm in my comfortable bed. And fail to rouse from this position of ease to enjoin ourselves with your communion or your service. And Lord, we, we pray that your Spirit would do a work of grace in our hearts, that you would keep us, Lord, from the trap of comfort and ease that you would keep our hearts, Lord, readily engaged in your business, hearts that are ever looking upward, those who are alert and constantly on watch, not only, Lord, for your return, but but also for your leading and, and guiding and various activities that you would have us to engage in in the interim. And Father, make us this type of people We pray in Christ's name. Amen. With that, I'll open it up to the men if there are any corrections or questions or other comments to edify this morning. I think you're right, John. As we've walked through this, the daughters of Jerusalem seems to be a term that just sort of speaks to those who are in association with Christ at large. And so where in this, uh, if, we're, if we're looking at this in an allegorical way, it would seem as though the, those who were giving spiritual, those who were in charge of spiritual oversight have, have failed her. And so she turns to just those who are of more humble nature, basically the brothers and sisters in Christ willing to listen, willing to join her in this search of of, of finding Him, um, to humble souls who would, you know, aid her uh, in this cause. So, and spiritually speaking, that would, of course, include um, praying and encouraging one another in the faith, yeah.
Okay. I'll turn it over to Keith.